John chapter 1, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's page 901. We um, are in the middle of, and, and I'll do a little bit of before and after, after we read the text. Let's just look at the text. And we're in um, verses number 8 through 14, although I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to get to 12, um, 13, and 14, but we'll pick that up next week, and it fits well with what Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit. So just looking at a couple of verses, we're going to, um, so starting in verse number eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word as we're even going to speak about it today, that it is your self-disclosure. It reveals to us who you are, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, who we are, our fallen condition, what Christ has done for us. It explains to us our present predicament. It gives us both hope and promises in it as we read it. Even these words you were speaking to your disciples who had troubled hearts. And Jesus, this morning, as we've gathered together, there may be some of your disciples with troubled hearts. And I pray that, Lord, the truth of who you are, Jesus, that it would be sufficient for us. We wouldn't long for some other manifestation, but your truth and your word would be enough for us. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room that we may be like like the apostles that cried out to you and just said, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, would you increase our faith and would we apply that faith to our hearts and may it untangle the trouble that we may find ourselves in our present hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. Man, let me just first and foremost be honest with you. Uh, um, it's allergy season. And so this morning I, I took my first uh, hit of allergy medicine and so something here is fuzzy. I don't know, I, it's not, it may be the sermon text, maybe fuzzy, the sermon may be fuzzy, maybe it's just me, maybe it's you, I don't know, but something just feels kind of all out of sorts. And so I'm gonna try to stick to my notes and try to work my way uh, through this, but we find ourselves in the 14th uh, chapter of the book of John. And if you are new to the Point Community Church, you're just checking it out, hey, that's okay, don't feel like, hey, I've missed 14 chapters, where am I gonna go? Like this section that we're in started in the first part of chapter 13, and it's kind of a, a, a new section, a new, a new uh, like, yeah, a new section, we could say, in the book of John, and it'll carry us all the way to the 16th chapter of the book of John. It's called uh, the Upper Room Discourse, and what we have here is Jesus's final words with his disciples. 
Jesus has taken his disciples into an upper room in the middle of Jerusalem. And just hours, Jesus will be arrested, falsely tried, falsely accused, and Jesus will be um, crucified in just a few short hours. It's in this upper room that Jesus will share a Passover meal with his disciples. He says, this is the reason he's wanted to share this meal with his disciples. And so he's come, he's shared the Passover meal with them. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, even though John doesn't include that, but that's already happened. The Lord's Supper ends with them singing a hymn like we've done this morning. They sang a song. After that, a dispute broke out among the disciples as to who was going to be the greatest in Jesus's new kingdom. Jesus has kind of stepped up and began to teach, and this is on in the 13th chapter. It's called the chapter of love. Jesus has reminded them, even in the midst of their discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus reminded them first of his love for them. And the second, Jesus has commanded them to love one another. He's called them to love one another. Jesus has taught that the ethos, right, the, the culture, the passion of, the, of Jesus's kingdom will be this. It will be love that flows from a humble heart and his evidence is manifested in sacrificial service. Love that flows from a humble heart being evidenced in sacrificial service to image that and also to image that the disciples were not getting it and the disciples had, had needed a cleansing. They needed to be saved. Jesus will image that by washing the disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, two dark moments have occurred. The first one occurred when Jesus kind of outed Judas as the one who would betray him. And Judas has now left the room. There's now just Jesus and 11 of his disciples. Jesus has another dark moment. Jesus has also predicted that Simon Peter would deny him. Between Jesus' talking of his own death, between Jesus talking about leaving them, between Jesus sharing the news that one of you will betray me, another of you will, will deny me. The, um, we open up into the 14th chapter. We started last week, tells us that the disciples are rightly troubled in their hearts. That's what the first, chap, first verse of the 14th chapter says. And in response to their troubled hearts, Jesus is giving the disciples truths to hold on to, truths to believe in, truths that they will, as the apostles of the church, the foundation of the church, they will be teaching. And he's also giving them promises to rest upon. So whenever your heart is troubled, application, and it gets troubled, does it not? We get anxious, we get fearful, but any number of things, when our hearts get troubled, what do we do in those moments? In the first, chap the first verse of the 14th chapter, Jesus tells us what we are to do. We're to believe that faith fights our troubled hearts. We're to hold on to these promises, these truths that Jesus gives for us in this, in this section of Scripture. Great truths that Jesus are teaching these are Jesus' last words, and last words are important words, are they not? If you knew that I only had moments to live, you may think about, what would I say? What do I want to say to my loved ones? And that's what's happening here. This is Jesus's, if you will, his last will and his last testament. He's giving to his disciples. Jesus knows that the hour has come, his last moments are upon him, and he's speaking to his loved ones. And by faith, he's speaking to us. We are included in that room. We are the ones that he's speaking to here. And Jesus also knowing that these men, that he's, he's going to entrust them to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to lead them, but these are the men who will carry out Jesus's mission. 
Jesus will begin a mission. He began a mission in his, in, in his incarnation. Jesus said about that mission, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I didn't come to be served, but I, I mean, I didn't, yeah, I didn't come to, uh, I came to serve, not to be served is what Jesus has said. And the same thing is true for us. We are to carry out Jesus's mission of seeking and saving that which is lost. And so Christianity kind of hangs in the balance here, if you will. And we see it in the disciples that they don't quite get it because just moments before this, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. We could say, hey, they've kind of missed the boat on that one. And now Jesus, knowing that his time is about time for him to depart, he's pouring into his disciples and he's wanting to teach them some concrete truths, to reiterate truths that he's been saying over and over again about himself. That Christianity hinges on us knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That's what I want to talk about from this text. That Christianity is about truth that addresses our, our minds. It's, it's truth that comes into our understanding and it enters our minds and it inflames our hearts and it engages our hands and our feet. But as Jesus even says about himself, I am the truth. It starts with truths. And what are these truths? Well, they're here in this text. They're truths about Jesus and about the nature of his salvation. And they'll carry us all the way through the 16th chapter. We'll be reiterating these truths over and over again. But here what we see in this text is Jesus is highlighting truths about himself. That the purity of Christianity rises and it falls on our understanding of who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul will pick this up when he writes to the pastors of faithful churches, faithful pastors like Titus, for example. And Paul will say to Titus, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If there are things that accord with sound doctrine, then there must be unsound doctrine. That not everything that comes from preachers' mouths may be sound doctrine. And it's our job with our Bibles open and our Bibles in hand to see and to learn and to engage our minds in truth so that we can be able to spot what is sound doctrine and unsound doctrine. In Jude's very short letter, the one, the last letter in the Bible before the book of Revelation, Jude writes there and he says, we are contending for the faith. Now we're going to talk about our faith at the end of this message, but what Pete, what Jude's talking about is not our faith. He's talking about the faith. It's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's this picture of with every church, with every generation, there is the entrusting of the faith. What's the faith? What's the truth of who Jesus is? It's the essence and the teaching of Christianity. And we too, as part of that, we stand on the shoulders of faithful men and women, Bibles in hands against, minds engaged, learning and wanting to seek. What are the truths of Scripture? But the first test in doctrinal soundness is in the purity, in the purity of teaching and thought is simply this, who is Jesus? That's what he's wanting to teach them. Who is Jesus? And this is important for us. This isn't just important for pastors. This isn't just important for seminary teachers, although it's important for all of those. It's important for you sitting here in these pews. Why is it important for you? Because how many of you have had a knock at your door? And you've gone to answer the door and there standing in front of you was a Jehovah Witness with a watchtower track in hand. Hey, have you thought about these truths? Have you thought about these things? 
Know this, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe what Scripture is teaching here about Jesus. They may, we can say, hey, you know what? We appreciate their, their, their tenacity. We appreciate them getting out and going door to door. They're willing to do more than I would be willing to do. We can appreciate that from afar, but we cannot appreciate their doctrine that they are teaching. They are leading men and women astray. How many of you know friends and have friends, maybe even possibly loved ones who are Mormon, belong to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? What they believe about Jesus is not what the Bible teaches about Jesus. They have another book that they hold on the same level as the Bible, the Book of Mormon. And in there, there's all kinds of teachings, shall we say. We can appreciate their commercials and go like, you know what? Their commercials are good. Their commercials are cute. Their commercials are funny. They're leading people astray. When you turn your TV on, there's engaging pastors that come on your TV. Men like T.D. Jakes. You can turn him on. He's charismatic. He's encouraging. He's funny. He's all of those things. He's passionate. And he's wrong on truths like these. T.D. Jakes belongs to uh, oneness Pentecostalism, and they deny the Trinity. They do not believe in a Trinitarian God, that God is simultaneously from eternity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe in something called modalism, that the church, the Orthodox church denied in like the 200s and said, hey, that's heresy. We don't believe that. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not who God is. But, you know, fast forward thousands of years later, and there are still groups of people believing that who get power and get clout and get on the TV. And even locally, we can point to churches. Say not every place that calls itself a church is teaching truth. Not all of them, not all of the churches believe what we believe about Jesus. In my own subdivision, there's a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. I've, I, I've been there for a chorus concert, hanging on the stage. There's a banner, at least there was when I was there. The banner is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, if you read what they believe, they do not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They believe that you can come to salvation and you can hit heaven by believing in other religions. They believe that God reveals himself in other religions. They will say, it's, you will be surprised when you get to heaven to find good Buddhists and good Muslims in heaven. But that is not what Jesus teaches, even in that verse right there. See, they put half a verse on a banner because what follows up after that is what? No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. And even in that, we could go on and on. Others, I've sat under pastors, preachers, um, teachers who taught that Jesus is not 100% man. Philip Derber, another pastor in this town, sat hurting with my own ears out of his mouth. Jesus is not 100% man and 100% God. That's 200%. That doesn't make mathematical sense. Well, I didn't know Jesus was teaching algebra, right? I thought he was teaching us theology. I thought he was revealing things to us. And then he follows up with Jesus was 100% man who was 100% surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God has made him God, made him the son. And they have a word for that. I mean, I can think of a bunch of words for that. Baloney. But it's called heresy, and it's not true. And if you don't know any better, you don't know any better. Even for me, you check, check it out in the scriptures. That as the apostles go out and they go to preaching, at one place where the apostle, I think it's the apostle Paul, goes to preach, it's to the city of Berea. Not, not Berea, that's in Kentucky. Berea. And these people are good Bereans. 
And what they do is they go, well, hold on, we hear what you're saying, but what we wanna do is we wanna go home and open up our Bibles and study it for ourselves and make sure that what you're saying is right. And we need to do the same thing. We need to have discernment. And ultimately, the first, Christianity rises and falls on what people do with Jesus. The first question we should ask ourselves of every, I believe, of every spiritual book that you read, every show that you watch on TV, certainly of every pastor that you sit under his preaching and teaching as a regular diet, the first thing you should try to figure out and see, what do they believe about Jesus? And what Jesus is doing here is he is establishing in very clear ways, he is establishing who he is. He's telling his disciples who he is. Remember what Jesus said about false prophets? What did he, you remember what he called them? He said they would be like wolves among sheep. You know what a false prophet A wolf, you know what he looks like when he's around sheep? He looks like a sheep. He doesn't growl. He tucks in his long tail. He slicks back his pointy ears and he tries to say bah a lot. And it's our job as Jesus was teaching to be discerning in that, to be be wise in that. And here's what Jesus teaches. Number one, he teaches this, that the very essence of Christianity is to know Jesus. That's the very essence of Christianity. It's to know who Jesus is and to know him. That's the essence of Christianity. Let's back up just a little bit and look at what in verse number five. Let's start in verse five as we um, begin to unpack the text. In verse number five, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going how, we, how can we know the way? He said, we don't know the way to where you're going. Jesus is talking about departing, going somewhere, returning to the Father. And he says, you know the way. Jesus says, you know the way. Hold on a minute. We don't even know where you're going, let alone do we know how to get there. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Notice what Jesus does in this text. Jesus goes from talking about a place, heaven, to talking about a person, knowing himself and knowing the father. That the essence of Christianity is to know a person. It is to come into right relationship with that person and the person is God that we even say it's popular meme and bumper sticker and maybe on t-shirts, we may say this, that Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have said that? How many people like that? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship and it is. They're correct in saying that. It's through Jesus that we come to know God. That Christianity rises and falls on knowing Jesus and you can't know Jesus apart from knowing Jesus. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing Jesus. That oftentimes when people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, oftentimes what they mean is this. They would say, let's, many of those people would say, let us set aside doctrine. Let us set aside biblical teaching. Let us, let us set aside intellectual deductive study. Let us set aside scripture and let's focus on experiencing God in a relationship. 
Let's focus on prayer. Let's focus on worship. Let's focus on our feelings and not dogma and not doctrine and not those sorts of things that feel so stuffy and so wrong. But it's through those things, doctrine and dogma and scripture and study and inductive Bible study, it's in those ways that we come to know God. And in fact, as as Jesus is speaking here to Thomas and to Philip even later on, Jesus is doing a little bit of wordplay. That if we were to understand this and read this in the Greek, and if we would, then it would all be Greek to us, right? It's all Greek to me. If we were to do that, then we would notice that Jesus is actually doing this wordplay between two words. That in the Greek, there's two different words that we would both in the English trans, uh, translate over into to know. There are two different words, and we'll use them even occasionally here. We'll talk about knowing someone, and that can mean one of two things. To say, hey, do you know so-and-so? It could mean, do you know about them or do you know them? That there is informational knowledge, and then there is personal knowledge. Informational knowledge is to know some things about a person. It's to, but personal knowledge is to actually know that person. It's to have a relationship with that person. Now, social media has made this even more available to us, as Derek has already mentioned, that we would even say like, hey, I've got friends. I find myself doing that. Hey, do you know so-and-so? And I will say, yeah, I do, but I, I may or may not have met them. They may have friended me or I may have friended them on Facebook. And I, now, because I see them on Facebook, I know some things about them, even though I may not know them. And that's what's happening here. See, the, the truth is you can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge. Now stick with me. This is going to get very important. You can have informational knowledge, right, without having personal knowledge. You can know about a person without ever meeting or actually knowing that person. You can study about them. You can stalk them right, on Facebook or whatever. If you visit our church, chances are you get stalked. No, I'm joking. We would never stalk you. But you can stalk them, can you not? You can eavesdrop on a conversation and maybe hear things about them. You can get secondhand information without putting yourself out there and going to the trouble and the risk of meeting that person. You can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge, but you cannot have personal knowledge without informational knowledge. Now think about it. There's a person and you've stalked them and you've checked them out and it appears that they're okay, they're not crazy or whatever, and you say, hey, I'd like to know more about you. I'd like to invite you to, to dinner or sit down at a meal or have some coffee with you. And then think about the kinds of questions you begin to ask this person. Hey, what, you know, men, we, we usually start with, hey, what do you do for a living? Where do you work? Tell us about your work. Ladies, you may ask them other sets of questions. I don't know what that would be, but, you know, maybe like, hey, where'd you get those shoes? I don't know how you began to get to know each other, but you do that and you go back and forth and you're gathering, right? you're gathering informational knowledge about that person that will lead you in that informational knowledge to a personal knowledge. That hopefully at the end of that conversation, as the conversation gets deeper and trust builds, you may share even more things, interpersonal things, even with that person. But that's what you're doing in that. You are building personal knowledge through informational knowledge. You're coming to know that person through information. And that's important for us because oftentimes people would say, 
bring it into the spiritual world? Why make such a big fuss about the Bible? Like, why do you all preach the way that you preach and you work your way through the Bible? And why every week do you say in every gathering, we're gonna study the Bible? Like every place I go in this church, you guys got your Bibles out and you're studying Bible and you're talking about scripture. Like, why is it that way? What about all the fuss? It just feels like all of those Bible things and doctrinal truths and all those things just further divide Christ's church. And like, here you are lifting them up. Why do all that? Why emphasize biblical teaching? Why emphasize sound doctrine so much? And it's for this reason that we might know Jesus, the real and true Jesus in his fullness. That it is possible to know the Bible without knowing God. But you cannot know God apart from knowing the Bible. You can study the Bible and spend tons of time studying the Bible and have a lot of knowledge about the Bible and not know God. If you don't believe me, like show up to Frisch's after church and you'll see a bunch of pagan people in there that just got out of church that probably know the Bible. But the Bible's never affected their hearts, their hands, or their feet, or their minds. And they may or may not know Jesus. They may or may not be regenerate. But they know a lot about the Bible. And so it is possible to know things in the Bible and not know God. But it is impossible to know God and not know your Bible. God has revealed himself in the Bible. That to know Jesus, you have to know and affirm and believe specific biblical truths about Jesus to know Jesus. You may have an imaginary friend for grownups that you call Jesus, but if he's not grounded in scriptural truths about who Jesus is, it's not Jesus. You may say, that's not the God that I serve. Then you probably serve yourself in a figment of your imagination. And he is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has self-disclosed himself in specific revelation in two ways. One of which you hold in your hands. The second of which we are talking about today. And he has ascended into high, reigning and ruling, holding up the very cosmos with the power of his word, who is Jesus Christ. That's why we emphasize the Bible so much. Even here, we see it in this text. That Jesus is teaching, uh, he is teaching his disciples, therefore he is teaching us specific truths about himself. And we will only look at two of those in this text. Aren't you glad I didn't say 10, right? Just two. All right, number one, to know Jesus, we have to know that Jesus is God, the image of the invisible God. Now again, hey, that's the big E on the I chart and so many get it wrong. That we must first and foremost understand that Jesus is God. It's the declaration all throughout the gospel of John, all throughout the Bible that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not any ordinary man, but I am God. But these disciples have spent three years with Jesus in the flesh. They've seen incredible things and they get to the end and look what Philip asked, God, asked Jesus. Jesus Show us the Father. At least he's beginning to understand some uh, idea of, uh, of Trinitarian theology. Show us the Father, and then it will be enough for us. Like what he's saying in there is, Jesus, you, your incarnation, you being here, you're teaching us it wasn't enough. We still need something more. Do something else, Jesus. Pull another rabbit, a new rabbit out of your hat and show us the Father. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. 
is God is immaterial. That God is a spirit without physical body. John, Jesus has been teaching this over and over again. John 4, 24, he taught the woman at the well and said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That God was without physical composition. He had no material body like you and I. I know you could say, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, it talks about the eyes of the Lord and the arm of the Lord and the ears of the Lord. And yes, that is God describing himself to us in ways that we can understand him. That is God highlighting attributes of himself. When he says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, what he's saying is God sees everything. And how can he see everything? Because he's not in a physical body. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. When he talks about the arm of the Lord, it's talking about the might and the strength of God, that God is mighty and God is strong. That God does not have a material body like you and I. God does not have height that we can measure him. God does not have weight that we could weigh him. That God, because he is immaterial, God is also invisible. He is the invisible God. He cannot be seen. John 1, 18, no one has seen God, the only God. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Certainly there were times when God chose to reveal himself in the Old Testament. Physical light, smoke, allowing people to see the glory of God, the glory that emanates and radiates from God. But until Jesus, we were totally dependent upon God's word, his own self-disclosure of who he is. We were dependent upon God's general revelation of himself in creation. That certainly we can, as we walk through God's creation, we can learn certain things about God. Just like if, I, if you were to go over to my home and walk in through my house and my family wasn't present, you can, by walking through my house, you can learn certain things about me and about my family. You can look and say, hey, this joker's got three kids and you can see pictures hanging up there, places maybe that we've been, things that we've done. You could, you know, See my fishing poles in the garage and be like, man, this joker must like to fish, maybe, you know? Oh, wait, no, look at them. They're not very good. So he's, you know, average at best fisherman and that would be true. And you can go through and you can look at all those in the same way as you and I, as we walk through this creation, there are certain truths that we see about God that's revealed in his creation. Paul picks that up in Romans, the first chapter and says it's God's invisible. His divine attributes are made known in and through his creation. You can't know God through his creation, but you can know about him, see some things about him in his creation. You can see that God is the God of order and beauty. He enjoys diversity and complexity and precision. We can see that God is powerful and that God is mag majestic. But Jesus changes all of that. Jesus is the invisible God being made visible for us. He is the invisible God dwelling in human form. Look at what Jesus said in verse number nine. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is in Jesus. Paul says it in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is fully God, fully divine. 
Paul says in Colossians again, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's move on to the next one. The first one was to know Jesus. We have to know that Jesus is God, the image of the invisible God. Let's pick back up in, I think it's actually, I broke verse number 10 down into two parts. In 10b, picks back up and it's, Jesus says, the words that I say to you, highlighting the words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The second truth that we must know is to know Jesus, we have to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus's words and Jesus's works. Highlighting the word sufficiency. But in this conversation between Jesus and Philip and Thomas in John 14, what it underscores and highlights is that Philip and Thomas are about to have, they're about to do something that they haven't had to do up until this point. Now, it is something that you and I have always done, believers in the room, but it's something new for them. And Jesus, in effect, is two things. One is he's preparing them for it, and also he's showing them, I think, how difficult it is to live like this, and it's this. What is Jesus preparing them to do? He's preparing them to walk by faith, to live by faith. And that's something you and I, we have to do. But they have not had to do it up until this point. I mean, up until this point, they have had to exercise not very much personal faith in Jesus up until this point. I mean, think about it. Jesus has been with them. He's been right there. They've been walking by sight, not by faith. Jesus has met their every need. Physically, Jesus has met their every need. When they grow hungry, Jesus fed them. When they grew thirsty, Jesus showed them where water was. Even whenever the temple tax was due, Jesus miraculously through a catch of fish, Jesus gives them money for their temple tax. When they needed shelter, Jesus had led them to a place of shelter. Jesus has provided for them. Jesus has protected them. Jesus has taught them the truths of the kingdom of God. Whenever they had a question, they went to Jesus and they asked Jesus a question. Now, sometimes Jesus would speak in a way that maybe they didn't quite understand, but Jesus would always answer the question. Their questions. Jesus has evidenced his claims and truths about himself by working miracles before their very own eyes. They've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few fish, a few loaves of bread. They've watched Jesus raise up the, the heal the sick, raise the dead, especially Lazarus. They've seen all of these things, but now Jesus is about to leave. He's about to depart. And Jesus is about to hand these men over to the Holy Spirit. There's about to be a change and a shift. There's about to be a change and a shift how these men have functioned, how these men have lived, what their Christianity has looked like and felt like, what their faith has. There's about to be this, this shift where they will no longer walk by sight, but they now will walk by faith. And it underscores, I think, the difficulty of this. We see this with Thomas. Again, you and I would say, man, if I'd seen what these guys had seen, there would be no doubt there was something different about Jesus. I mean, if I was in the boat the day that he calmed the sea, called Peter to walk out on the water, I mean, that would be the end. I could believe that, but we see how difficult it is. 
to walk by faith. And we see that even in the life of Thomas. Notice it's Philip and Thomas that are asking these questions about Jesus. And after Jesus' crucifixion, even after his resurrection, Thomas will say to the disciples, and this, we'll, we'll pick this up again in John 20. He'll say, unless I see the nails and place my finger into Jesus' side, I will never believe. I'll never believe that Jesus is resurrected. I think he's also, also saying there, I'll never believe that he was the Messiah. And after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to Thomas. And Jesus invites Thomas to come and to plunge his fingers into his open side, to touch his nail-scarred hands. And then Jesus commands him by saying this, do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. I think that's, a, that's an affirmation of faith. My Lord, my God, it's you. I should have known. It should, shouldn't have taken me to this that I had to, again, walk by sight. My faith should have been enough. And Jesus follows that up by offering a blessing to all of us who by faith are following after Jesus. He says this, have you believed because you have seen me? And Thomas would have had his answer, yes, I believe because I have seen you. But then he offers this, Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's you and I. We're those that Jesus is speaking about. You and I are the ones who live by faith, are we not? I've never seen Jesus. Not physically. Not like these men saw Jesus. Not like these disciples saw him. I've never had a vision of Jesus. I've never met an angel that I knew about. I've never met an angelic host of people. I've never, any of those things, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've never heard any heavenly voice. I've never had a conversation with anyone from the dead. I've never seen God physically. And yet I believe with all of my heart that God is. The Father is. The Son is. Christ is. The Holy Spirit is. And why do I believe? This is just blind faith. Why do I believe? How do I believe? of his word. That's what Jesus is saying. My word and my work should be evidence, should be authority enough for your faith. It should be sufficient. You shouldn't need another greater manifestation. My word and my work should be enough for us to believe. I have this book and Jesus' word is all the evidence that I need. I believe that it's obviously the revelation of God and it's the only one in this book. And as I read this book and as I open up this book, I see Jesus in this book. I see angels in this book. I hear the voice of heaven in this book. I see God revealed through the pages of this book. And this book has stood the scrutiny of skeptics and unbelievers and Believers, even true believers throughout the, the test of time, it stood throughout history that its truths are from God. And I believe that and it substantiates my faith. My faith is not blind faith. That you and I, we live by faith and we, our faith though is substantiated by, by God in his holy word. We have faith in the God and the God of holy scripture. We live by faith, not by sight. And you and I, we are blessed. We are the ones who have not seen, yet you and I, we believe. 
And when I feel my personal faith is weak, you ever been there? You ever felt like your personal faith is weak? Like your faith is as thin as a, as a thread that's holding you into belief, that's holding you into your relationship with the Lord? Have you ever been there? Man, I know I have been there, but when I am there and I feel the weakness and the fickleness of my faith, I do not pray for some kind of mystical experience. I do not pray for a miracle. I do not pray for an angelic revelation that my prayer is the same prayer that the apostles prayed in Luke 17, 5. I pray Jesus increase my faith. Jesus increase my faith. And what Paul says in Romans the 10th chapter is this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the practical part. When your heart is troubled, when your faith is fickle and your faith is weak, what do you do? Here is what you do. You get out them old Bibles and you bust them open and you start reading and studying and praying and seeking. Faith, faith is increased through the Bible. Faith increases proportionately to your understanding of scripture. Scripture reveals God, and the more you see God revealed in scripture, the greater your faith becomes, the stronger it becomes. You can't know Jesus apart from knowing Jesus' word. Jesus' authoritative word, it reveals Jesus to us. And our relationship with Jesus is built upon his word. And lastly, in closing, Jesus' work reveals God to us. Again, you and I, we don't have a miracle. We can't just, hey, Jesus, do a miracle in front of me and then I'll believe we can't do that. But we have, we have opportunity even this morning to remember Jesus' greatest miracle. That when Jesus speaks these words in John 14, he's yet to work his greatest miracle. He's saving the best to the last. And his greatest miracle will take place in, an, in a tomb. His greatest miracle will take place as he gives up his life on a cross and then they place his dead body in a tomb. His greatest miracle would be his own resurrection, him passing from death unto life. And it reveals and teaches us so much about God, does it not? It reveals God's power to us and God's sovereignty to us. And it also reveals God's heart to us that God loves us and that God is good and that God's love is being even made manifest to us. And this morning, you and I, we get to come with our faith as fickle as it may be as we place our weak, fake, fickle faith in the faith. The faith. As we place our weak, fickle faith into Jesus the one who holds our faith, as we come to believe truths about Jesus in his word and remember his work in his word, may he increase our faith. Let's pray. Jesus, may what we have already be sufficient for us. May it be sufficient for our faith and for our life. May it be sufficient for us both as hope in this present life as well as in death. May what you've already done and you already revealed, may it be enough. And Lord, on a practical sense, I just pray for us as a church that whenever our hearts are troubled, 
when our zeal for you and our passion for you has run cold, when our faith feels so weak, feel like we're just hanging on by a thread. I pray, Lord, that we would run to you in your word and that by our faith in your word that you would meet us there and our relationship with you would grow in that we see how you worked and how you interacted with your disciples and your claims that would you give us faith, increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by your word, hearing by the word of God. As we hear your word, would our faith grow and increase our trust in you that would untangle our troubled hearts. Even this morning as we come remembering who you are and remembering all of your promises, even this morning, Jesus, Would it grow our faith? In your name we pray. Amen.